You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, there have been some uh, events that have taken place, some in our lifetime and some not in our lifetime, a long time before, but some of these events that I want to talk about at this particular point are are cataclysmic in their nature, monstrous events, events that took place that actually changed things, changed the course of history in, in some instances, altered the, the uh, direction that, w- that mankind was going. And these events generally were of such magnitude that they were easily recognized. For instance, the uh, age of enlightenment took place at, at the close of the Dark Ages. And that was uh, brought about in the main by the fact that uh, Europe turned its attention to receiving the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, in their own language. The Age of Enlightenment came about because the European continent, as was said, arose from its deep slumber of ignorance with the uh, copy of the Greek New Testament in its hand. So enlightenment came about and things changed. People began to to understand and and began to get uh, educated as it were. And it would be foolish for us not to realize that the great universities in this country and in other countries actually were established on the basis of an attempt to spread the word of God, to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the... uh, there also, we have the record of the fact that the uh, Age of Enlightenment was accompanied by the development of the printing press. And the printing press, the first book that came off the Gutenberg press was a copy of the Bible. So the Age of Enlightenment was motivated or moved by the desire of humanity to hear and understand and read the Word of God in their own language. There have been other revolutions that have come about that have changed history. The Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th century in this country and other countries was a great change. It, uh, it, it changed the way we view things. It changed the way our economies were, were structured. And the Atomic Age was brought upon us by a cataclysmic event, the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. That brought us into what we call the Atomic Age. And then, of course, the Space Age came soon after, and that came about because of the development of jet propulsion. And, uh, of course, we now have the uh, ability to go into space and take pictures and even send men to the moon. And we, personally, are living in what is called the uh, Age of Technology age of communication maybe. But all of these ages came about because of structural changes either in the economy or in, in the industry or in the development of individual intelligence. But sometimes changes take place not in such a magnificent open way but in a more subtle form. Let me, let me mention the name of a fellow here, but his, his name is uh, Edward Lorenz. 
He, uh, he died in 2008, 1938 to 2008, 70 years old. He was a uh, mathematician and a meteorologist and probably a climatologist at MIT. And during his, his tenure there, in, in 1963, I believe it was, he wrote a, an article or sort of a book. And uh, in it, he made the statement concerning climatic changes and what happens in the weather. He said that, there was a, uh, that uh, the climatic change could be postulated on a butterfly flapping its wings in a Brazilian jungle that created a tornado in Texas. Now that's subtle, isn't it? A subtle change. That has, by his colleagues and by his students and by his peers, that has became known, become known as the butterfly effect. A butterfly flapping his wings in a Brazilian jungle can create a tornado in Texas. That's a subtle change. There was a not-so-subtle change that took place at the turn of the whole world, the age of the whole world, when a young man named Jesus came to this earth and he was born in an obscure village, so obscure that at one time one of his own disciples said his name was Nathaniel. When Philip came to him and said, we found the Christ, and Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Here's a little obscure town, Nazareth. And Jesus had come from Nazareth, and they even didn't even think it was significant enough of community to think that any good thing could come out of it. So here was a young man who died at the age of about 33, who impacted the world in such a tremendous, dramatic, magnificent way that the world actually was changed after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The impact that Jesus has had upon history is without comparison. He did, in fact, change the course of human history. And that from an isolated little town, in an isolated little country, in an isolated little spot in the world, Jesus changed the whole course of human history. And it would, be, it would be foolish on our part to deny that he did. We even mark our calendars by this man. Now think about this. Jesus is the only human being. Of course, he was, we believe, God in the flesh. But he was the only individual ever to make such an impact on the world so as to change the course of history. He did it by himself. He did it while he was here. And then after what he taught and what he presented himself as, the world made a change. It, was, it happened so quickly, as a matter of fact, that in Acts chapter 17, we have the history of a man by the name of Paul. And I think it's about verse 5, 5 and 6, where Paul was preaching in a little community up in the Greek peninsula, or close to the Greek peninsula in, in Macedonia. And he was, he was preaching in a place called Thessalonica. And the people came there and they made a statement. They said, these have come here also that have turned the world upside down. 
And as a matter of fact, friends, that's exactly what he did. Jesus turned the world upside down. What happened? How did he affect the course of history with such magnitude? One individual. Now, when we talked about the butterfly effect, we don't know who the butterfly was. We, we can't identify the butterfly, and we can't identify the tornado. But we can identify the one who's changed the course of human history, Jesus. We can identify him, and we can identify the result of his life on this earth and what he did. He put us on a different course. He changed, and I'm going to say, I'm going to use two words here. The way Jesus changed human history was, he changed it from a sociological point of view, a relational point of view. In other words, he changed man's relationship with God, that's one, and he changed man's relationship with his fellow man. It was a societal change. It wasn't an environmental change. Jesus didn't change the environment. He didn't change the political structure. He didn't change the economic scene. He did not change the cultural scene. Jesus changed the sociological structure of this world. What he did was, and here are the two words I want to use, these two changes, man's social relationship, his relationship to God, and man's relationship to his fellow human being. Two words. How did he do it? One, because he changed the dynamic. He changed the dynamic of that relationship. And the other is that he changed the paradigm of that relationship. Two words. They're easy. Easy words. Dynamic means energy. Where does the energy come from that changes our relationship with our God and with our fellow man? That's it. The dynamic he changed the dynamic. And then he changed the parameters of that relationship. Where do, the, where do these borders go? The paradigm is called in our vernacular today. What, what, what's the scope of that relationship? And basically what we're going to say is that he changed it by transferring the dynamic of relationship from law to love. That's how he changed it. Why do we do what we do and how do we behave the way we behave with God and our fellow man? Is it by law? Is that what moves us to change? Or is it by love? Well, we, we, have, to, we have to start out. I, at least I have to start out thinking about this in terms of do I have to really research and find out what love is? Is that what I have to do? Do I, have to, do I have to go back through my lexicons and concordances and our, our work, word definitions and so forth and see if I can find out what does this word love mean? And if it's the dynamic, if, if it's that which changes my relationship to God and that which changes my relationship with you, do I, do I need to somehow dig deep into my intellectual resources? Basically, I would say no. And the reason why is because God came, Jesus came, and he came to speak to the common, ordinary individual in common, ordinary terms. Matter of fact, the New Testament was written in, the, in what is called the Greek, but not just the Greek. It's called the Koine Greek, which means 
the common Greek, common language. So Jesus came and came, and as he talked, he spoke with a common language and used common elements of social interaction in order for us to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about love. Now, we know what love is. Most of us do. Most of us practice it or have it practiced on us. From the Bible perspective, the term love is used in a a number of different ways. It talks about familial relationships. In other words, parents and children. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with the promise. It talks about husbands loving the wives, wives loving the husbands, and so forth. It talks about family relationships. And it talks about the fact that Jesus was loved by his father. When Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, at John baptizing, a dove from heaven sat upon him, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove sat upon him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. What he's saying is, I love him. Now, we know what that means. We don't have to dig into lexicon to find out what he's talking about. I love him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love this boy. Well, so, when we're talking about familial love, we're talking about an an affection. How I'm affected, what, what sort of affections I have in my family. We know what happens in a family. Families love each other. There's tenderness among family members. There's acceptance among family members without hesitation. Of course, Jesus said, He that loves father father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus was saying is, you can't exalt your own family above me. You need to love me. That's the first problem we have. Not the first problem, but the first situation we have is, we need to be loving Jesus and loving God above loving our own families. But at the same time, we understand what familial love is. We, We understand it. We understand it that we accept each other in the family without hesitation. That we, we have expressions of approval and encouragement among family members. That's love. And we also have an unconditional endorsement of those people that are in our family. We sometimes justify them. We sometimes defend them. We sometimes make sure that they're, they're not harmed in any way. We want to protect our family. Well, we know what love is. We don't have to define it. We just look out here and see it. We can see it. We can see it between brothers and sisters. The type, that, this type of love, generally between siblings, cousins, and so forth, comes about because there's a blood tie. We're related. So it's not just our immediate family, but it's those who extend who we extend our family, our relationships too. Romans chapter twelve verse ten says, "Be kindly affectioned one to another." Now, Paul, what are you talking about? Be kindly affectioned one to another. And then he says, "With brotherly love." So he says, "Okay, look at what brotherly love is like, and that's what I'm telling you to treat each other like." That's what he's saying. He's saying, in honor preferring one another. Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. So he's actually telling us the type of love he has in mind when he's talking about changing 
the dynamic, but he's, he's talking about the fact that we understand. We really understand what love is. We don't have to be schooled in what it might mean. Sometimes when we're talking about love, a preacher will, will trot out a couple of words and say, well, here's love. This is, this is what we call agape, and this is what we call filio, and so forth. And so we, we try to break these words up and, and say, okay, here's, here's one, here's the other, here's what this one means, and here's what that one means. What Jesus said was, love, yourself, love each other like a brother. Let brotherly love continue. He says, love each other like parents and children love each other. So we have not only the recommendation, but we have the illustration. First Peter 1 and verse 22 says, You have purified yourselves in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Brotherly love has basically its own sets of definitions, I suppose. Siblings are drawn to each other. You know, they say that, that uh, twins, if they're separated, or triplets or quadruplets, if they're separated at birth, will always have some sort of a draw to one another. They'll be sort of alike all during their life. Social boundaries with brothers and sisters are blurred. When we talk about in our current vernacular, give me my space. Brothers and sisters invade that space, don't they? There's no such thing as give me my space with a brother or sister. There's no boundaries. You see, the, the boundaries are being changed when we talk about the dynamic of love and the parameters of love and the paradigm of love. We're talking about destroying some boundaries, aren't we? When we talk about brotherly love, he says, let brotherly love continue. So maybe I don't have a space that you can't invade if brotherly love is there. Inappropriate behavior sometimes is is justified between those who are siblings. So, well, that's just my sister. That's the way she acts. So we justify that behavior. So what we're talking about is a strong sense of protection that, that, that exists between siblings. Jesus vaulted the world into another sphere of relationship when he chose the general concept of love as the dynamic of our relationships. He took us from one sphere, which was law. Here's the way you have to behave because the law says you have to behave this way. And changed it over here and said, okay, this is the way we behave because we love. Not because we have to, but because we love. Because there's some feeling within us that says, I need to act differently now, not because I'm told to, not because I'm threatened to, not because I have to, not because I'm going to be humiliated or shamed into it, but because there is another energizing force in me that is called love. Just an aside. When we talk about love, a lot of people think romantic love. They think about Cupid. You know, Cupid was the uh, god of, or sort of a god of Eros. That's what his name was, Eros, which meant lust. Well, 
The New Testament does not use that word eros. It never comes up. So he's not saying I want you to fall in love romantically with your neighbor, your friend, or so forth. He's saying I want you to use the dynamic of love and he's describing us. It's familial love. It's brotherly love. This is the type of love he's talking about. He's saying this is how you, you should treat one another. Okay. It appears that Jesus was not as interested in a narrow definition as he was as an overall aura of compassion and extended care for the feelings and situations of others. Did I, was that too long of a sentence? He's not as concerned about a narrow definition of love, like agape, which means always act on the best, bef, best benefit of someone else, or filio, which means this is the way you treat your brother. But Jesus is talking about an, an open aura of love that is not narrow in its definition. That he's, he's extended the parameters. He's saying, okay, we're going to talk about love in a different way. He's going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. He's going to say, love your enemy. Well, you know, we know he's not talking about romance. He, like I said before, that's not even in the, in the context of the New Testament. Erotic love is not there. It's an emotion expressed. Love seems to be an emotion expressed that involves care and compassion and a tenderness and a congeniality that you have, that you feel. Love is a feeling. It's not an act. Love is a feeling. Peter said it this way. He said, Casting all your care upon Him, that's upon God, for He cares for you. How does He care for me? Well, I look back at the cross, and I look back at Jesus, and the first thing I realize is, that if, that if I'm going to be attracted to God, I have to know something about Him. So my care for Him, the love, and regardless of how I define this now, we do know that it's an emotion. We do know that it, 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 it is something that's kind and good and sweet and peaceful. We do know that love is all of these things. We know that. But we also know that love is elicited, elicited. It's drawn out of us. So, when I want to think about how I love God, and we're told that we need to love God and keep His commandments, love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we know we're to do that. What does that mean? It means that I have to have a feeling for God. Like I have for my parents, like I have for my neighbor, like I have for my friends. I have to have a feeling for God. And the way I, I developed that feeling is, I look at Jesus, who came as the fulfillment of the person of God, and He showed me who His Father is. That's what He said, John eight fifty eight. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And we read in John chapter 1 at verse 14, or verse 18, I guess it is, that he said, no man has at any time seen God, but the Son of God has magnified him or has shown him. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. And then we look at what happened on the cross. 
John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. And I think, why is he attracted to me? I'm vile. I'm sinful. I'm wrong in what I do. I make mistakes. I can't walk uprightly for any length of time. I have bad thoughts. I have have bad actions. Why does he care about me? But the Bible tells me, Jesus told me by his death on the cross that my father loves you. So I think, wow, he has an emotion for me. So that, that then tells me that I can reciprocate. And that's basically what, uh, what we're told in John chapter 4, verse, verse uh, 18, I believe it is. We love Him because He first loved us. Okay, so God loved me first. He showed me how it happened, and then I can love Him. Now, I know the Bible says you should love the Lord your God. The, first, the two commandments in the law. First commandment was, this is Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 38. The first commandment was, the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we have the dynamic of the social change that Jesus brought about. These two factors, our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. We're to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And the, the way that I come to that conclusion is, I know that He loved me first. He loved me first. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 says, All the law is fulfilled in one word, even as this, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. So the law is fulfilled in that one word. In 1 John, no, I don't mean 1 John, I mean John 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I loved you, that you love one another. The new commandment wasn't that love is around, that you should be loving. The new commandment was, as I loved you, you loved your neighbor, your friend, your brother. That's the newness of the commandment. John 15 at verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. So, we have a reciprocal love going on. That means that I feel for Jesus, I feel for the Father, I feel for the Father and the Son because I feel for them because they first had that feeling toward me. And that's the dynamic for me in in keeping the commandments. So it's a warm and genial reaction, even under severe circumstances. We're told that we love God even when we don't agree or do not feel like we should be doing what He's asked us to do. Now, let me explain this. The reason we keep the commandments now, and of course the book of Galatians is written, if you have ever have time in Galatians You should read very quickly, and it's just a few chapters. It's talking about the difference between the law and the Spirit. And there it talks about if any man is justified by the law, he's fallen from grace. And it also talks about the fact that if you are justified by the law, you cannot be justified by faith. You're justified by faith instead of the law. So 
it, he's, he's using the difference of the law and faith. Now, when we talk about the law, we're saying, well, here's what the law says. You must do this. But the dynamic under Jesus Christ is not compulsion because of fear or compulsion because of, uh, of uh, the fact that we want to be right in our own eyes and that we want to preserve ourselves in some way right in everybody else's eyes, but because we love, because we have a feeling for God. So if I sin, the thing that I should feel is not that I got out of line, which I did, but the fact that I hurt God. I hurt Him. He has feelings for me. Now don't think that just because God is God, that He doesn't have any feelings. He has feelings. If He didn't have any feelings, He would not have sent His Son to this earth to bring us home. He has feelings. When I sin, when I, when I disobey His law, when I step out of line, when I steal, I cheat, I gossip, I slander, I, I fornicate, I do all these things, if I get myself mixed up in sin, I am hurting my father. Just like I would hurt my mother if I was misbehaving in that way. Or my earthly father. You understand? So now then the dynamic has changed. The dynamic is not I have to do it because I'm told I have to do it. The dynamic has changed and it says I do it because I have a feeling for you. And the feeling I have for you is love and I do not want to hurt you. That's, that's the dynamic of it. We should love one another as, we, as Jesus loved us. Jesus came to teach us how to love the Father. He's declared the Father. He said when, when He was asked by some of His apostles, show us the Father. Jesus said, have I been so long with you that you've not seen me? John 14 and verse 9. As humans, we're unattractive to God. And when we think about that, we begin to understand that He has feelings for us. Why would He care about me? If I slander him, if I abuse him, if I spit in his face, if I sling his name with mud, whatever I do, why, do, why does he care about me? The Bible says that he loves me. Romans chapter 5 verse 7 says, Scarcely for a righteous man some would die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a major shift in the paradigm of history, that Jesus, in spite of who we were and how we behaved, He loved us and He died for us. We love Him because He first loved us. First John 4, I think I said verse 18 while ago, was 1 John 4, 19. That's the reason. The second seismic shift, now that's one. The second seismic shift that we have is to love one another. Now, we're told that there are two different reasons for this. And one is, you love your neighbor as yourself. So you look at your neighbor, and you do a, not a mirror image, but you do a reverse image when you look at your neighbor. You have to feel like your neighbor feels if you were in your neighbor's shoes or you were like your neighbor. 
So that's, that's not easy to do, is it? But that's what he says. He, he, he changes the dynamic. He doesn't say, love your neighbor because I told you to love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor right because I told you to treat your neighbor right. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So, that's what he said also. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, it says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Now that, that really puts it into another perspective, doesn't it? We're loving someone. He, he, here he talks about the wife. and Of course, we can, we can uh, project that into anyone, neighbors well, and friend. We love someone as ourself, which means when we love them as ourself, we are treating them like we would treat ourselves. And if we love them, we love ourselves. That's sometimes tough to, tough to turn around, but, but that's what it is. How would I treat myself if I were a stranger? How would I treat myself if I were a crass individual? How would I treat myself if I spit in my own face? How would I treat myself if I didn't like the way you were treating me? How would I treat my... That, that's the point. And that's tough, tough to see, isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm going to change the world, someone said. I'm going to change the world. I don't like the way the world is. So I'm going to get up in the face of the world and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to yell and shout and scream and, and throw a tantrum and even get brutal and, and vicious and I'm going, to, I'm going to do things to them so I can get their attention. Jesus changed that. He said, Don't, that's not the way you do it. And he's not saying that's not the way they do it. He's saying that's not the way you do it. I do it. So I can't change the world by making you love me, but I can change the world by loving you as me. That's what he's saying. If you salute your brethren only, said Matthew five forty seven. what do you do more than others? The publicans do the same thing. If you, if you treat everybody nice because they treat you nice, it's not going to change a thing. You know that? It won't change a thing. It'll just get worse. Never change a thing. And the paradigm that we're talking about, the borders that he changes, he said, love your enemies as yourself. Well, that means we have to treat them like we would treat ourselves in the same circumstance. We know what love is. We know we know we don't have to be uh, schooled in that necessarily. But apparently, in the New Testament times, people had gotten to the point that they maybe they didn't really understand what it means when it says to love. Maybe they needed some definition, and maybe I need some definition. What does it mean? What? Let, show me some applications. How how do I behave? Here's the paradigm. The paradigm is, the dynamic is love. And the borders are raised. I have to love everyone as I would myself. So all of a sudden, I'm involved in this great cultural change, sociological change. And the change is, you can't deny it, wherever Jesus has been preached and taught, society changes. And it changes for the better. Love prevails. Not hatred, not animosity not repercussions, love prevails. 
Okay, I'm going to read a text. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is usually used at weddings and funerals. But it ought to, it, it's, daily, it's daily applications. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul introduces the concept of love. And he said, I could speak with all the tongues of men and angels, and if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm becoming as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And he goes through a little series of that, talking about what he would be if he didn't have love. King James calls it charity, but it's the word love. And then he, in 50 words or less, from verse 4 to verse 7, he actually tells us what love can do and does. Okay, here it is. Love suffers long. Okay. If you have an enemy, and an enemy is abusing you, he says love suffers long. Love tolerates, has patience. Love is kind. Well, we can see the obverse of that too, can't we? Love is not critical and mean and nasty and spiteful and vengeful. Love is kind. We know that. I know that. You know that. We all know that love is kind. Love does not envy. Love doesn't do anything out of jealousy. So whatever's compelling you, if it's jealousy, you've got the wrong, you're on the wrong track, and my, myself the same thing. Love does not vault itself, vaunt itself, does not put itself up on the highest pedestal. Remember Jesus taught, taught some people that were at a feast one time, and I think it's back in Luke chapter 7, he said, when you come into a, a feast, he said, don't take the highest room. He said, go down sit on the lowest place. Don't vaunt yourself. Don't make yourself as if you're most important. Don't, don't go up on the dais and sit where you're facing the whole audience and they can see what a wonderful person you are. He said, love doesn't do that. Love does not exalt itself above its fellows. It doesn't act like it's better than anybody else. It does not behave itself unseemly. That's kind of hard one, isn't it? It doesn't misbehave. It doesn't, be, doesn't behave itself unseemly. Well, unseemly basically means out of sync with things that are right and in order. doesn't throw a fit. Love doesn't throw a fit. Love doesn't throw a tantrum. Love doesn't jump up at the table and knock everything over and stomp out of the room and slam the door. Love doesn't do things like that. Love doesn't pout. Love doesn't say, I'm going to get even. I'm preaching, aren't I? It says it's not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Doesn't seek her own. If I get my way, it's my way or the highway. But love doesn't do that. The dynamic that moves, and what I'm saying basically is, I, I'm not trying to tell you what to do or not to do. What I'm saying is that this is the dynamic that changes our society. When these principles move our behavior, it changes. It changes the home. It changes the neighborhood. It changes the community. It changes the country. It changes the world. Whenever Jesus comes into the picture and He changes the dynamic that moves and motivates our action, it changes things. And it changes things for the better. 
It seeks not her own, not selfish, is not easily provoked, doesn't lose its temper. Wow. So many things cause us to lose our temper so quickly. Love doesn't do that. You know what love says? Love says, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have a short fuse. Don't justify me for having a short fuse. Because love doesn't have a short fuse. I'm using the wrong dynamic. What I'm using when I have a short fuse, if I lose my temper, it's because I'm operating on another level and it's a very low level. Again, not preaching to you, just simply saying that this is what happens when love is in charge. Love thinks no evil. Thinks no evil means, and of course Jesus used other terms like this, he said, we're not to judge one another lest we are judged with the same judgment, which means I'm trying to read your mind. I know why you did what you did, and I don't approve of it, and I'm going to expose you for it. It says it thinks no evil. What basically I see in this is that love tells me that I should put the best possible concept on someone's action. Best possible construction. That I should give you the benefit of the doubt. That's what I should do. Because love does not think evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. I'm happy when you get what you deserve. No. I don't think evil. I don't rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't do that. But love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love is able to take it and take it and take it and take it and keep coming. Love is not defeated. Love believes all things. That is all things that are right. Believes in God. Love believes in Jesus. Love believes in the purity and the goodness of humanity. Love believes in the good construct of anything going on. That's what love does. Love hopes all things, endures all things, and here's the kicker. And here's why when the dynamic changed, it changed the world. Love never fails. It never quits. It never collapses. It never folds up and steals away in the night. Love never fails. You can't stop it. God bless you. Fill your heart with it. And then expose it to others. And recognize that Jesus is the Son of God's love. And that He loves us and we should love Him as He loves us.